Hello, this is Naj Hiram. And I'm Jeff Suarez-Grant. This is Get With The Program. Yeah, here we talk about a question we have about online course design. As we help faculty build their courses, we have our own questions. We're back with our fourth episode on diversity, equity, and inclusion in course design. We first looked at ways to introduce DEI to course design, whether or not good course design is naturally inclusive, and then what specific practices support DEI and who is specifically helped. And that brought us to this episode. So not what's our question for this one? Okay, so I'm an ID at an institution. How do I talk to faculty about DEI and course design? We need this conversation, but it's a hard one to have. Hmm. What, what makes the conversation hard? Well, the relationship between the ID and faculty has some additional dynamics and subtext. So the ID are deputized by the administration to ensure quality course design. A department often tells the faculty to talk to us. So talking to us may remind them that someone thinks that there may be something wrong in their course. And on our end, we have maybe a list of equity gaps or pass rates pointing in that direction. So that's setting the stage. You know, when we talk to faculty, they, you know, may still think that they ultimately decide how they teach. And then what we say as IDs is restricting their academic freedom in some way. You know, that we are not really aware of any demands they have from departments or accrediting bodies. But, you know, we as IDs have certain ideas of what a good course is through traditional course design rubrics and diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. So they may be kind of afraid of us looking at and judging their courses unfairly. We have kind of have to sense how far to go with faculty. We want to introduce these practices without complicating that relationship. Yeah, I feel the same way. The The relationship you have to establish with faculty, it can be a little fraught. Um, they're putting a lot of faith in you that you know what specifically is needed for a high quality online course. And then, you know, also with the pandemic, because so many people were forced to pivot to remote teaching. And now we're actually working with a lot of those same folks to now build high quality courses. You know, they might say, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing, you know, but we're in this position of saying, well, no, there's actually, you know, very clear specific standards and practices for high quality online courses. That's maybe very different from emergency remote teaching. So then, here we are now contemplating introducing even more standards, adding even you know more practices, DEI practices specifically to to implement in course designs. That could be a problem when we're still trying to convince many to just follow you know Quality Matters or any of the various quality assurance rubrics for online courses. Yeah, they feel empowered by the experience they had during the pandemic of teaching remotely. They may have uncover new practices, try them out with their students, iterate it over different semesters. So they have that experience. However, you know, we have our own practices too. And when we add DEI, we add race, ethnicity, culture, sexuality, class to that conversation. You know, very contentious topics in America right now. Um, they could get difficult. So we rely on the ID faculty relationship as the engine of change. But does adding DEI practices impede our ID work or can it? It definitely could if we're not careful about how we approach it. Um, I think there's two there's two sides to this. There's the, there's the personal conversational side, which I think is the most important to carefully navigate. But then, like you said, there's also this broader, you know, current political climate. You know, 
talking about race, I think just simply makes people feel uncomfortable. In the previous episode, we we touched a little bit on like racial colorblindness. And then, you know, that some in universal instructional practices, you know, try this tact, you know, advocating for universal practices that help everybody. And, you know, approaching in this way, you know, to avoid getting bogged down, you know, quote, quote unquote, bogged down in race, class, and background. But like we talked about previously, you know, that can be problematic if you ignore race, class, and background because it kind of lacks intention. You know, to be effective, you need to know who specifically you're trying to help. You can even look at the folks at CAS, you know, they're the one of the um, kind of the, the stewards of the, the UDL guidelines. And those folks there, they're actually looking at how to make the UDL guidelines more specific with regard to racial equity. And then, you know, quickly touching on the political climate, you know, even universal instructional practices are now being targeted. Um, you know, in Florida, you know, they finally released the results of that controversial textbook review. And the, the New York Times reports that, you know, in addition to wanting to ban critical race theory, culturally responsive teaching, and social justice, they also wanted reviewers to flag social emotional learning. So it doesn't seem to matter if you stick to universal design course principles or you're specific to contemporary pedagogy. Everything seems to be under scrutiny. However, are we just going to forget about our students? These practices can help our students. You know, when I step into the office or talk on Zoom, faculty mentioned there's a disconnect and lack of motivation from students that's more pronounced than ever before. You know, in spring 2022, our student body is roughly 73% Latino, um, 15% Asian, 16% white, 6% black, and 2% Native American. Now, if we do have strategies that work well for all, but work that much better for students when we include their whole person and make our work relevant to their lives, are we just going to pretend these practices do not exist? Based on the latest data, there's a about an 8.8% equity gap in a four-year graduation rate between non-underrepresented minorities and underrepresented minorities. So should we just pretend this gap and others do not exist? I mean, it seems like we have no choice but to talk about race, class, and background. I mean, the data points to a, a pretty critical issue. Um, and so going back to the framing and how you know, maybe we'd start a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion with a faculty member. I'm, I'm curious what you think about the framing, you know, for a specific practice um, and whether, whether you think like being covert about race, class, and background is, is could be like a strategy, like it helps kind of smooth over the conversation, helps you ease into it. Um, so for example, like take the, the DEI practice of discovering what's culturally relevant to your students. You know, or or should that be discover what's culturally relevant to students of color or culturally relevant to first generation students? You know, would you take out the students of color, not mention that, you know, to avoid, you know, potentially uncomfortable conversation? And does taking out students of color or first gen, you know, does that harm or diminish the impact of that practice? And you know, does it make it harder for the faculty to really understand what their what they're trying to achieve or what you're trying to help them achieve. It makes it less effective if you never talk about it. So for culturally relevant to students, sometimes faculty could add or think about generations like Gen Z or millennials or, or other things like a pop culture instead of focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, sometimes ideas may feel that they're putting faculty on the spot by using the phrase students of color or disadvantaged students. We do advocate for universal design practices, but 
that doesn't stop us from talking about the students we're intending to support. Right. I think, you know, you're right about um, faculty kind of like misinterpreting what's meant by culture. Um, and, and absolutely, you can you can advocate for a universal course design practice, but then you can say, you can list who it's going to help. Um, and, and I think I think that's important. But then going back to like the, the misinterpretation, like so say they're redesigning an assignment to use TikTok, you know, a faculty might say, well, now it's culturally relevant to my students. But of course, that's more like, you know, what you were saying before, pop culture or internet culture. And that doesn't really connect deeply, at least, with the student's kind of background, their community or their their lived experience. And so as you, I think as you set up for a career at a specific institution, you know, if, you know, if you're a tenure track faculty member, or maybe you're a lecturer teaching at a few different schools in a particular area, you know, it's worth discovering more about your students and their communities. And for us here at Cal State LA, where a majority of our students are Latino, you know, that warrants our attention to discover what's culturally relevant to them. And, and I think more awareness on the whole of the faculty hopefully makes it easier breaks the ice a bit to talk about race, class, and background with colleagues. And um, you know, again, it just kind of enters the, the, the conversation and there's some shared language there and just makes it that much easier to talk about. Let's say that you, you, know, you hear that, but you still want to focus on universal design practices. You know, let's take one, transparency. When writing prompts for assignments, um, if we just stress transparency alone and not transparency for students in the class, we could end up just writing what would be good to us, what would be transparent to us, and not the target audience. It says that much in you know a basic um, ID textbook, The Essentials of Instructional Design by Abby Brown and Timothy Green. One of the main things is to have a needs analysis and to think about the target audience. Another universal design practice is structure, and we we definitely recommend a clear, navigatable structure where students know where to find items in the course. However, do students want to see the whole structure at once or open up the modules in sequence one, two, and three? For faculties on calls, you know, they differ on this point. Maybe you can ask your students which one works best for them. So I think that to apply universal principles, you need some information about your target audience, your students. What happens when you don't have that or don't use that? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. Like you can you can still use these universal practices that work for everybody, but then all we're asking is to simply also, you know, list or talk about, you know, a, a few examples of specific students, um, you know, specific types of students that your specific institution serves. Um, so for like transparency, using the TILT framework, you know, it's definitely more than just like the assignment instructions are, are clear and easy to understand. You know, the, the first part of the TILT framework is the purpose of the assignment, like establishing the buy-in is huge. And to do that, I think you need to know your students. You need to, um, you know, know what it means to your students uh, to go to college, their motivations for attending college. And I think you can assume something safely. You know, for instance, if you're at a university that serves a large number of first-gen students or students of color, you know, upward mobility is likely to be an important goal. But better to ask the students, you know, survey to ask what attending college means to them. And then you can use this information, you know, as you uh, better frame assignments so that they see the connections with what motivates them. And then for structure, 
you know, I think sometimes faculty have different concerns about like opening up the whole course to students, everything from not wanting them to go too far ahead to not wanting to overwhelm students. But I think if you're cognizant of students who work full time or care for children, and that's an issue of class and background, of course, you might want to be more flexible. It might be hugely important for a student to see all the details for a future week ahead. You know, maybe that's the week that they're the sole caregiver for for their family. Now, I can see some faculty relating to some of these issues and some maybe not. So do you think that there are some DEI practices that faculty feel more comfortable talking about? Yeah. And I think, you know, people are even comfortable talking about the specifics of who has helped for some practices. Um, and so it, I mean, think about how closed captions work for the deaf and hard of hearing. You know, certainly we talk about how captions help all. Um, and that's kind of like that the the tact of UDL that like if you're watching a foreign film there's obviously subtitles or if you can't have the sound up the 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 captions can help you still watch the movie but most and I think most people are, are at ease talking about captions and how it relates to people with a specific disability it's it's why I think there's hope for being able to talk about race and ethnicity as it relates to other practices um, another one is I'm I'm seeing folks more widely use inclusive language and pronouns. And I think I'm seeing more people be able to explain why that's important for queer and trans folks. And of course, talking about it with ease is very different from actually doing it. Some faculty might find some DEI practices as easier to implement or talk about. For example, faculty could provide their pronouns and not try to frame assignments in scenarios that are relevant to their students. Or they may provide images of many kinds of students, but are unsure of what motivates students or what they're drawn to culturally or otherwise. How to address those practices that faculty are uneasy about talking about? I think that's, yeah, that's the important question to ask is like, what's what's the strategy for introducing the DEI practices? Um, I don't think that strategy is that much different from how we talk about quality assurance in general. Um, I mean, here at Cal State LA, at CEDL, you know, we when we start faculty in our course design program for online courses, we don't immediately start talking about QM or quality assurance and how their course will be evaluated. I think if we did that, you know, folks would run away screaming, you know, they're not going to stick around and engage. So, you know, instead we we sprinkle it in um, a little bit at a time. And I think with the DEI practices, the same, the same strategy could could work. You know, instead of saying we need to make your course, you know, culturally relevant to students, you know, you bring it up as the need arises. Um, but I think that's the point is that you do eventually bring it up. Um, you know, for instance, you know, you may be working with a, a faculty and you're looking at some scenarios they're going to use for an assignment. You could give them some suggestions about what might be more culturally relevant examples. You don't even need to say the words culturally relevant. You can just say, you know, hey, you know, I, instead of maybe featuring golf here, you know, we think about another sport like soccer or basketball. Um, and it may even be good to talk about it from personal experience, like a personal perspective. Like I can say personally, I don't play golf. And so, you know, to have a, a physics example that is exclusively about golf, you know, consider other sports that might be more relatable to, to students and more relatable, relatable to your friendly instructional designer. And then later in a subsequent conversation, you know, you could reveal to the faculty what you were doing there. And, but that's after you've built some trust with them and you talk about the that DEI practice and how that's about uh, being culturally relevant. Um, and then maybe ask them, like, how, how what did you think of that? You know, how, how was that? 
My guess is that they'd say like, oh, that, that made total sense. You know, the way that you framed it in the context of the assignment and different examples, it didn't, that wasn't such a big deal. Right. That's a way to take away some fear from that interaction, that conversation. And I just need some flexibility to do that. I think that's why it's so important to equip, you know, IDs, faculty developers, faculty fellows, or lead faculty who work with their colleagues, you know, give them a flexible set of guidelines that help embed DEI into online course design. It's one of the reasons I'm really excited about the annotations for diversity, equity, inclusion, and online course design. You know, this platform we're developing, it'll make it easy to sort by a particular quality assurance standard. And then you can see what sort of DEI guidance connects with that aspect of course design. And so going back to like working with the faculty, maybe you have an upcoming meeting where you're going to be talking about the course orientation, um, or you're looking at an assignment and the scenarios that are being used. You can go into this platform and sort by a variety of different criteria to find guidance that aligns with what you're going to be talking to that faculty about. Yeah, these examples of DI practices can help meet the goals of traditional course design practices. You know, this is basically showing that what we're talking about here, how to apply these universal course design practices to your students. You know, these DI practices are actually a means of applying these universal design practices to your particular students, your target audience. Yeah, I, th I think really what's happening is we're just, we are, we are helping uncover the specific types of students that are being helped by those universal practices. Um, and I think that's really important for, you know, systematic instructional design is to have intention. So if the intention is for students to meet certain learning outcomes, great. You know, we have a systematic way of designing for that. If our instruction is supposed to be systematically helping address equity gaps for certain student demographics, we should know specifically who those students are, and we should be able to point to specific practices we're using. Um, and that, I think, really helps with the evaluation, like to, to see, did it actually work? You know, did we see an uptick in the success measures for our uh, minoritized students or students of color or our first generation students? Yeah, this is great. This is expanding our our toolkit, our scope of awareness, our ability to address traditional instructional design situations and initiatives. So this is a way to move our field forward. This is not Jerome. And I'm Jeff Suarez Grant. And this was Get With The Program. <laughs>